Well, good morning, church, as we begin this morning. If, if you looked at the title um, in either the newsletter or up on the screen here this morning, I bet at least one or two of you might be wondering, why in the world have I titled this morning's message in weakness and fear and, and much trembling? Well, as we dig into the account this morning, and, and we align it with Paul's personal disclosure, as we're going to see in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, we're, we're going to see this story this morning in a little different light. What I mean by this is that 2 Corinthians chapter 2 is going to help us see that for everything that Paul has accomplished in his second missionary journey, Paul is not immune. He's not immune from the physical and emotional and relational trauma of faithful gospel ministry. He's not immune to it. And in practical terms, it's very possible That when Paul rolls into Corinth, he is running on fumes. His team, well over 100 miles away. Trying to finish up the work they started in both Thessalonica and Berea. Yet, yet as we recognize, and we're going to see Paul's weakness and his weariness in these verses, the thing that we're really going to see that's really beautiful and amazing is we're going to see how God sustained his exhausted servant, first of all, with the most ordinary grace of Christian fellowship, before he revealed his amazing promise of protecting grace in a vision in the middle of the night. We, we have ordinary grace, and we have divine, miraculous promises of grace. And in this, we see, I think the main point this morning is that God never leaves us to accomplish his purposes in our own power. He doesn't leave us to our own power to accomplish his purposes. So as we go to the text this morning, we're going to break it down into three pieces. Verses 1 through 8, the sustaining power of ordinary grace. 9 through 11, the unexpected promise of protecting grace. And verses 12 through 17, the undeniable manifestation of God's protection that we're actually going to see played out. So grab your Bibles, grab your devices. We're going to be Acts 18, starting in verses 1 through 4 to begin with this morning. Luke tells us this, after Paul left Athens and went to Corinth, and he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome, and he went to see them. And because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked, for they were tent makers by trade, and he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath, and to persuade Jews and Greeks. Now, now when we come to these verses this morning... As I've already alluded to, it's, it's easy to overlook some very important developments that are not clearly stated in the text in front of us. To begin with, Paul's isolated from his team. He, had to get, he, he got forced out of Berea. He has been more or less on his own since he left. Time in Athens, now he's in Corinth. Secondly, From what we see in the text, it very much could be that Paul is running out of money at this point in time. We have not seen Paul go to work. Yet here, Paul has traveled close to 1,400 miles. He's been on the road for months. It's very likely that they've burned through most of their resources. He doesn't have access to an ATM. He doesn't have Apple Pay for somebody to send him cash. He needs to go to work. 
First thing he does when he arrives in town is he finds a job. Number three, it's important to acknowledge also that there's a monumental transition between Paul's ministry last week in Athens and between his ministry in Corinth this week. Do you just think, where was Paul in Athens last week? He was duking it out with the greatest thinkers and scholars in Athens. He's got an audience like nobody gets. And where's he at in Corinth? He's hanging out with blue-collar folks in the marketplace making tents. I mean, when you think of the, what the excitement to be in that, in that environment in Athens to where he's at now in Corinth, it can seem like a massive downgrade. But there's even more. There's even more than meets the eye. As we've already alluded to, when we read this passage in light of 1 Corinthians 2, we're gonna be able to see that this indefatigable apostle who nothing seems to stop, no matter what happens. He just keeps going and going and going and going. We're able to see that he's actually at a rather low point in his ministry life. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, starting in verse 1. These are Paul's own words. And I came, and I, when I came to you, brothers, I didn't come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom, For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and fear and trembling. And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power. So that your faith may not rest on the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. So two quick observations of 1 Corinthians chapter 2. Number one, when Paul says, I didn't come in lofty speech and wisdom, Paul is not saying he's not a very capable speaker. I mean, we already saw his speech last week, right? He seems more than capable to handle himself. He just gave an address to the, to the most renowned scholars in all of Greece. So it's not that he can't speak. He's saying here, when he came to Corinth, he didn't try to pre- impress them. He didn't try to wow them with with his technique. He didn't didn't give an oratory. No, he spoke with simplicity and clarity as he proclaimed the gospel so that it might be clearly understood. Yet as Paul was going about this faithful ministry in Corinth, what was going on in Paul's private world? God only knows the physical injuries he is still managing after his malicious beating in Philippi. He was beaten with rods. What what, what kind of emotional trauma is Paul going through? Sometimes it's easy to think, Paul, he's just this guy and he goes, he had a vision of Jesus, nothing is gonna stop him. No, we see emotional trauma in Paul's life. I mean, I mean, is he struggling with some form of PTSD after everything he's gone through? Everything that's boiling around inside, all this anxiety and fear on the inside as he goes into this new ministry? I mean, he's faced a vicious mob in Philippi and he's been run out of two other towns. 
And he knows. He knows in those towns, if he had not got out, those mobs would have drug him into the street just the same. See, 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 Paul is the epitome of faithful gospel service, right? Every single one of us know that. We see it very clearly in God's word. But these verses in 1 Corinthians and also the vision that God gives Paul help us see that his faithfulness did not shield him from, disabil- from, from really debilitating fear and an anxiety. Because, I mean, it looks like in, the, in Paul's heart, what is, he, what is he concerned about? That there's more conflict and rejection and pain on the horizon. He's led countless people to faith in Jesus Christ. But he is not the Christian ministry equivalent of Chuck Norris. Or Rambo. Or Superman. He's human. Just like you and me. Yet in the midst of this gospel warrior's weakness and fear and trembling, we we actually get to see the good and sovereign providence of God shining through in the most simple and ordinary way in Paul's life as, as this entire encounter begins. Back to our passage, verse one. After this, Paul left Athens and he went to Corinth and he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, recently arrived from Italy with his wife Priscilla because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. And he went to see them. And because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked for they were tent makers by trade. Now let, let, let me just show you how I see God's providential grace at work in these verses. Number one. In Priscilla and Aquila, Paul finds a place of employment. And while this doesn't seem like a very big deal, it seems like just a throwaway statement. But why are Priscilla and Aquila in Corinth to begin with? Did they decide to take a holiday? Did they decide to expand their business? No, they are there because they got thrown out of Rome by Claudius. All the Jews... Suetonius tells us it's because the Jews were rioting over the name Crestus. They're, they're, they're fighting with Christians. So Claudius throws all these people out. But Luke tells us, why are they in Corinth? Because they got thrown out. They didn't really want to be there. They were there because they, they lost their home. Who else does Luke write about that was somewhere they didn't want to be at a time they didn't want to travel? Luke chapter 2. Mary and Joseph. Why? Because there's a worldwide census by Caesar Augustus. We we see the sovereign hand of God moving. We acknowledge it every Christmas, moving Mary and Joseph to the city of David for the birth of Christ. And here we have Paul arriving in Corinth. Meeting a couple that shouldn't be in Corinth were it not for the fact that they got thrown out. Secondly, In Priscilla and Aquila, Paul finds fellowship with fellow Jews and most likely fellow Christians. More more than one scholar would say, you know, we're pretty sure that Priscilla and Aquila are already Christians. After all, that was the issue up in Rome. That was why the Jews were thrown out and they they were most likely Jewish Christians. Others would say, well, we may not feel comfortable going that far, but it's obvious they came to faith in Christ pretty quick. It's not very long, and they're Christians. 
They're central to Paul's gospel ministry. And it just so happens, number point three, that these two people become a central part of Paul's ministry and a central part of the church going forward. They end up spearheading Paul's church planting efforts in Ephesus as we see at the end of the chapter. Who travels with Paul? Who does Paul leave? And who does Paul come back to later on? It's Priscilla and Aquila. We find out later on that they end up instructing errant Christians like Apollos, who is a powerhouse after his instruction and getting straightened out in his theology. And we find out later on in the book of Romans, they return back to Rome and become a central part of the church in Rome. Very important people. See, even though this this Greek verb here found really doesn't tell us if Paul was necessarily looking for them or he stumbled across them, as we add up all the things in the text, it becomes very clear that Paul's finding was, was an act of God actively working in his providence. And in all of this, the important thing is, is what did God do? He put him in connection with other people people this is very important Paul is not the lone ranger he is not superhuman just like you and me what did Paul need to uphold him and encourage him in the midst of his weakness and fear and trembling this is before he gets a vision he has all sorts of active fruitful ministry before he ever receives a vision context of fellow people fellow Christians the common grace the ordinary grace I should say of Christian fellowship ordinary grace is what is upholding Paul in this first stage of his ministry spending time with ordinary people just like you and me Starting verse 5. Let's pick up back with the story. Because Paul's fear is anchored in a concern that he has seen a pattern. There's a pattern, and he's worrying that it's going to play out again. And we see it actually happen as we go to verse 5. When Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, Paul was occupied with the word, testifying to the Jews that the Christ was Jesus. And when they opposed and reviled him, he shook out his garments and said to them, your blood be on your own heads. I am innocent. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. And he left there and he went to the house of a man named Titius Justus, a worshiper of God. His house was next door to the synagogue. We'll stop there for a minute. Now, it's kind of interesting at this stage of the account of of Paul's travels, Luke does not give us a record of Paul's preaching. And that's because he's already given us a record of what Paul's preaching looks like. Both to the Jews and to the Greeks, he's shown us what that preaching looks like. Here, he, he he just synthesizes it and says, what is he arguing? He's arguing that the Christ, that the promised Messiah is Jesus. And we know from earlier examples, how does he do that? He reasons from the scriptures to show them that the answers are in God's word and this is who Christ is. Doing the same thing. Verse 
But then what happens with the Jews? The same thing that happens in previous accounts, whether that be in Antioch of Pisidia, whether that be in Thessalonica, or that be in Berea, they reject Paul's teaching. They don't just reject it, they go on the attack. In fact, Luke describes the Jewish response here in two powerful verbs. Now, number one, they, they opposed him. Or, or some of your Bibles might say they resisted him face to face. Okay, I mean, they are face to face with Paul, and they're going at it. Second verb, they reviled him. Literally, they blasphemed, they slandered, they defamed Paul and his teaching. After all, Paul is teaching, in their view, a blasphemous, blasphemous gospel. Number one, how in the world... In their mind, could anybody who is crucified be a Messiah because crucifixion is the sign that somebody is cursed by God? Cursed is anyone who hung on the tree, right? Secondly, there's the entailments of the gospel. The Mosaic Covenant does not guarantee salvation. God's redemptive presence is no longer tied to the temple in Jerusalem. And even worse, Gentiles could find salvation and become members of the people of God without following the Torah, without wholesale taking on the entire Jewish system of oral tradition and laws. See, in their minds, this is anathema. But how does Paul respond to the abusive opposition and the outright rejection of the gospel? He abandons the work. And this just had to kill him. He moved next door. <laughs> he moved next door and launches a new ministry directed primarily towards the Gentiles. And, and at this point, it's, it's, let's bring in a little clarification. I think it's very helpful at this point. When Paul says, from now on, I'm going to the Gentiles, he is, he's not saying... He's not saying that he hasn't been already proclaiming to the Gentiles in the marketplace or other places, no. And he doesn't mean that he's going to completely turn his back on the Jews. We, We see all the way through the book of Acts that Paul is constantly proclaiming the gospel to Jews. He's not saying, I'm done with Jews. He's saying, I'm done here in the synagogue. In fact, we see that Paul has the deepest compassion for his Jewish brothers and sisters in Romans chapter 9. Written some years after this event, Paul says this, I am speaking the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience bears witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers and my kinsmen according to the flesh. Now, does that sound like Paul has utterly abandoned the Jews? Not in the least bit. No, no, Paul has a heart for his kinsmen to the degree that puts many of us to shame as we think about those around us who don't know Jesus. 
He's gripped with grief over Jewish unbelief. He loves them so intensely that he is willing to sacrifice his eternal salvation for their everlasting joy in Jesus Christ. That's what Paul tells us in Romans 9. See, he's not taking this personally. Certainly not anti-Semitic. No, he cares deeply. See, see, what's going on in this text is that Paul is den- isn't denouncing his people, the Jews. No, he's making it clear that he's done everything in his power as a faithful servant and messenger from God to make sure that the Jews don't realize that they've missed their Messiah if they miss Jesus Christ. That's what's at the heart of this. When he says, I'm innocent and your blood be on your own heads, he's saying, I've been faithful and I've worked and I've shown you and I'm only leaving because you're forcing me to. I've warned you, but you're not listening. That's what Paul is doing here. So please, it's easy to read into this that, that he's now just turning his back on the Jews. He's not. So as we move forward in the account, what, what happens next? The same thing that happens every other time. We see people come to faith in Jesus Christ. Whether, we, we, we see it happen. Antioch of Pisidia, we see it in Thessalonica and Berea. Every time that Paul goes from the synagogue out into the crowd to minister to Gentiles, every time the same thing happens. Jews come to faith in Christ, Gentiles come to faith in Christ. And in this case, not just any Jews, right? We get like the ruler of the synagogue comes to faith in Jesus Christ. Like like that is no small deal. He turns the leader of the synagogue to Jesus. And the leader of the synagogue and his family come to faith and they're baptized along with a bunch of other Gentiles. They make the public profession and identification with a crucified and rejected and risen Messiah. He said, we're Christians. Now, at this point in the account, we might be tempted to think that Paul is on cloud nine and that he is doubling down on his plans for further ministry in Corinth. But verses nine through 10 help us see that Paul's inner world is out of alignment with his external success. His inner world is out of alignment with his external success. He's seen a pattern. Every time we get this summary statement that that Jews and Gentiles come to faith in Christ, what is the exact next thing that happens? There's a riot in the city. Every time. It's happened three times so far. But that's when God steps in with the unexpected promise of protecting grace, starting in verse 9. And the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, do not be afraid, but go on speaking and don't be silent for I'm with you and no one will attack you to harm you for I have many in this city who are my people. And he stayed a year and six months teaching the word of God among them. Now, did you ever realize just like what God's 
command in the first clause of this vision tells us about Paul. Do not be afraid. No one is going to harm you. God's answering a question that Paul's wrestling with. He's he's, he's dealing with something that Paul is struggling with. He's dealing with that weakness and fear and trembling that he disclosed in 1 Corinthians chapter 2. If Paul's not worried about it, God doesn't need to warn him or or promise him that it's not going to happen. But it begs the question again, why does Paul feel weak and afraid when so many people are coming to saving faith in Jesus Christ? Well, let's just go back through with a little bit of review of what's happened every time we've seen a record of people coming to faith in Christ, both Jews and Gentiles, three cities, starting in Acts chapter 13, verse 50. But the Jews incited the devout women of, the high, of high standing and the leading men of the city stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas and drove them out of the district. Acts 7, 5. But the Jews were jealous and taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob and they set the city in an uproar and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out. That is Paul and his team out into the crowd. Acts 17, 13. But when the Jews from Thessalonica learned that the word of God was proclaimed by Paul at Berea, also they came there too, agitating and stirring up the crowds. See, this is the pattern that Paul has seen playing out over and over and over and over again. And it's a pattern that he's concerned is going to play out again because everything has happened just like before. I mean, it's like he's just waiting for the other shoe to drop. Yet in the midst of this weakness and fear and trembling, God doesn't merely tell him, hey, Paul, just stop being such a baby, man. He, he, He doesn't tell him, press on no matter the cost. You know you have an eternal reward. He could, but he didn't. No, no, God anchors his command to not be afraid, but to go on speaking and not be silent in two gracious promises and one glorious purpose. I'm with you. No one will attack you, for I have many in the city. Now, now when God promises to be with Paul, It's not in any way saying that God is promising he's going to be somehow closer to Paul than he was before. God is omnipresent, right? And it's not like, oh, I I was at the far edge of the galaxy and now I've come closer and I'm going to be here. No, no, the, the promise to be with Paul is a promise that he is actively present in his ministry in a way that he has not been before. There's a withness of a promise of protection. It, it's, it's, like, it's like with Moses in the Exodus and the wilderness generation. God is with Moses. In fact, when, when God says, fine, just go, I'm gonna send my angel, what does, what does Moses say? He's like, I don't wanna go nowhere unless your presence goes with us, Right? We have Joshua getting the promise of God being with them and for them in the land where they go into the conquest. We see promises to Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel in their prophetic ministries to a wicked, unfaithful, and treacherous people. I'm with you. In fact, it's the very same kind of people that Paul is trying to minister and the kinds of people who are trying to obstruct his ministry. 
I mean, if you haven't read the prophets, step one to being a prophet is to expect that your life is really going to be hard. That nobody's going to want to listen to you. And they're going to do everything they can to stop you. And, and as we look, God, God's presence to, to all of these others didn't necessarily shield them from difficulty. It didn't shield them from difficulty. I mean, I mean, Moses saying, God, would you just kill me? I mean, I mean, it was that bad leading the people of Israel. He pleads with God to put him to death because it's so bad. No, they, they, they faced. They faced threats. They th- faced discouragement. But in each and every case, through all of those ministries, God preserved those men through their trials so they could accomplish his purpose. And actually, in the text that we have here, is, is Paul receives a unique and special promise. No one is going to harm you. I mean, there's no doubt Jeremiah probably would have loved that promise. Paul gets it. No one's going to harm you. See, in essence, God is doing the exact opposite of what he did at the very beginning of this second missionary journey. Remember at the very beginning of the missionary journey, what did God do? God closed doors. God closed doors to Asia. God closed doors to Bithynia. And he said, no, that's not the way to go, Paul. He closed doors. But here at the end, what's he doing? He's opening doors and he's saying, no, I have work for you to do. There is much to be accomplished. God has a chosen people in the city to be saved and it's Paul's job to continue preaching the good news of the gospel so that they're going to hear it and be saved. And something happens here in Corinth that doesn't happen anywhere in the second missionary journey. Paul stays somewhere for a year and a half. It's stunning when you realize how he's moved through town to town to town. Year and a half. Year and a half of ministry. Let's pick it up in verse 13 as we move to the manifestation of God's protection. God has given a promise. Now we have an opportunity to see God fulfill his promises to the Apostle Paul, starting in verse 13. But when Gallio was proconsul of Achaia, the Jews made a united attack on Paul and brought him before the tribunal, saying, this man is persuading people to worship God contrary to the law. But when Paul was about to open his mouth, Gallio said to the Jews, if it were a matter of wrongdoing or vicious crimes of Jews, I'd have reason to accept your complaint. But since it's a matter of questions about names and words and your own law, see to it yourself. I refuse to be a judge of these things. And he drove them from the tribunal and they seized Sosthenes, the ruler of the synagogue, and beat him in front of the tribunal. But Gallio paid no attention to any of this. For the sake of time, let me limit myself to two observations here. Number one, is that the Jewish accusation against Paul here in Corinth is, is actually very different from the accusation that came when he was in Thessalonica. 
Acts 17, verse 7. The accusation in Thessalonica was is that Paul and his team are acting against all of the decrees of Caesar, saying there's another King Jesus. So notice, in, in Thessalonica, the argument against Paul is that it's a Roman issue, that it's against Caesar, that it's about another king, and that the, and that the Romans need to do something to stop this from happening. Where we get to our passage today, chapter 18, verse 13, this man is persuading people to worship God contrary to the law. That is in the law of Moses. Not Roman law, the law of Moses. In, in other words, what are they doing when they're coming to Galileo here? They're, they're saying, protect our religious practices from Paul's gospel preaching. I mean, after all, they kind of have a good reason to ask for protection because, again, he, 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 can, he, he saw the leader of the synagogue come to faith in Jesus Christ. But it's very interesting that the very grounds of their charge is the, is the reason that Gallio refuses to even hear the matter. Notice, what's his answer? This has nothing to do with Roman law. I, I don't give a rip about your religion. I don't, give, I don't care about your names and words and law. It means nothing to me. Go figure it out yourself. And, and notice here, Paul is ready to defend himself. He is ready to open his mouth. but he never has to say a single word in his defense. That is very notable. Paul doesn't say a single word. Before he can utter a word, Gallio refuses the hearing. So the second thing that I want to point out is that God not only protects Paul through Gallio's decision, God delivers. God delivers Paul from the threat but God doesn't just deliver Paul, does he? God punishes the Jews for their attack against Paul. Notice for the first time in the entire book of Acts, it's not Paul or one of his companions that is beaten by the crowds. Who's, who's beaten by the crowds? It, it, it's Sosthenes. He, he's the current ruler of the synagogue. He took over. The crowds grab him. And Paul is allowed to continue his ministry in Corinth until it seemed right and proper for him to return back to Antioch and to give a report. God has protected Paul. God has delivered Paul. In fact, God has actually turned things upside down in that the place where Paul would be the one who would be taken out and beaten, it's his accusers who are taken out and beaten. That is God's hand of divine justice at work. And what do we see happen on the way back? Let's just, just walk through. After this, Paul stayed many, many days longer. So, so he ministered for a year and a half. This happened. He stays many days longer. And finally, he takes leave of the brothers. He sets sail for Syria. And who do we got with him? We got his tent-making pals, Priscilla and Aquila. 
He cuts his hair. He takes a vow. They come to Ephesus. And what does he do? He leaves Priscilla and Aquila in Ephesus. And that's important because he comes back to Ephesus. He preaches in Ephesus. He, he reasons with the Jews in Ephesus. They want to hear more. And it's very interesting that Paul, Paul's answer is what? I'll be back if it's God's will. I think he's learned something in this, in this second missionary journey about God's hand and what he does. Like, I want to be back. And then he goes and he returns and he gives a report to his church in Antioch. Every time circling back to his home church to stand and give a report for what he's done. And then we see the heart of this man again. Where does he go next? He doesn't go off and take a beach resort holiday. He goes and strengthens the churches. Paul loves the church of Jesus Christ. And he wants nothing more than to see them growing in their faith, standing against false doctrine, and seeing people come to faith in their city. He loves it, and he's doing everything he can. So what can we take away from Paul's ministry in Corinth today? It's, it's a little different than many of the other accounts we've been through. I'd like to highlight two things. Number one, is that faithful obedience and fruitful ministry does not exempt God's servants from bouts of fear and anxiety and depression. I I think that's an important thing. We, we, we can read God's word in a way where we, we build up these people to such an extent that we don't, we don't think they're like us. And what we see is Paul is very much like us. He's very much like us. I, I mean, I have to say as your pastor that in, in 25 plus years of ministry, I've enjoyed some of my highest highs and I've experienced some of my darkest depression in the very midst of gospel ministry. Both. And and you know what is the common denominator in the highest highs and the lowest lows? It's people. It's people. People who are either growing in their love for Jesus and their commitment to Jesus, or people who are walking away from Jesus denying the Savior who bought them. People who trust you and love you and know you're trying to lead them to the best of your abilities and serve them. Or people that don't trust you and go out of their way to stir up conflict and strife. Highest highs and lowest lows. And for anybody who served in any ministry capacity... It, you don't have to be in pastoral ministry to experience this kind of stuff. Like, like if you've served in any ministry capacity for any length of time, you, you know what I mean. What do we do? We, we minister out of our love for and our obedience to God, right? We're, we're, we're not doing it because we're people pleasers. I hope we're not doing it. It's, we're not doing it for accolades of people. We're doing it because we believe it's important. We believe that God calls us to it. We believe that it matters. We believe that eternity is real. We believe that discipleship matters. 
We're not just going through the motions. We're not just putting on a little bit of drama production every Sunday morning trying to make people happy about their life. But see, while God's glory is at the heart of our service, people, people are the inescapable context of our mission. People are the mission. Buildings aren't the mission. Numbers in and of themselves aren't the mission. People are the mission. And if it's been said once, it's been said a million times, gospel ministry would be rather easy if it wasn't for all the people. Right? So on the one hand, we need to be honest. There's a real cost to ministry. Wherever you serve, at whatever level, there's going to be a cost. You cannot serve without the cost. But at the same time, we have a Savior who's promised us I will be with you to the very end of the age. Matthew 28, verse 20. I will be with you to the very end of the age. What's the very reason, even at the very beginning of Acts, that the disciples had to wait in Jerusalem? They didn't have the power to do what they needed to do. Like, like y'all have been getting trained for three and a half years, but you're not ready yet. You need the Holy Spirit. Like, I'm not, you're not, not going to send you out alone without what you need. God is with us and he's for us. Never going to abandon us no matter what's going on, even though it sure feels like it sometimes, don't it? But this begs the question, how do I continue serving when service hurts so bad? How do I do it? I mean, I've, I've had any number of conversations between Sunday school teachers and elders and deacons who are like, they're actually telling you they're throwing in the towel or they're getting ready to throw in the towel. <laughs> it hurts. How, how do we continue? Well, I don't think it's in looking for a vision like Paul gets. Paul wasn't looking for vision. He received a vision. I think Paul points us to the answer in that he pursued the life-giving and ministering and, and life-giving and ministry-sustaining power of God's ordinary grace in relationships with fellow Christians. It's ordinary grace. We're often looking for these extraordinary interactions that we get zapped full of power and it is the very ordinary grace of Christian fellowship, time in God's word and time in prayer where we find the most sustaining long-term power that we need. But often out of those three that I just listed, the one that we start to cut off the quickest when we hurt isn't the word and it isn't prayer, it's normally people. We isolate ourselves thinking that we're going to find healing, but all we do is find greater darkness. Isolation is not the answer to ministry or church-related pain. Isolation ain't never gonna fix it. 
See, if the Apostle Paul did everything he could to work in a team, and we see that through his entire ministry, Paul does not like to work alone. And in our text today, he went out of his way to find Christian fellowship when separated from his team. We should recognize the wisdom that, yes, along with our personal time in God's word and prayer, if you're not doing that, you need to be doing that anyway. Like, like that's, just that, that's just like breathing in and breathing out. But we desperately need one another. We desperately need close relationships with fellow Christians. Yes, people are the very place where we can get hurt the most. They are. But in his good and sovereign providence, God has chosen to use Christian relationships as the primary conduit through which he dispenses his sustaining grace. Fellow Christians are the conduit. God's grace doesn't normally fall out of the sky like a rainbow and hit us and we get filled up. Now God is free to do that if he chooses. But it's most often gonna happen in the context of relationships with fellow Christians. That's what we need to see in the text today. Let's close in a word of prayer.